Warning, this episode contains foul language, inappropriately timed jokes, and murder, murder, murder. there weirdos i uh, I didn't see you there (laughs) you are listening to keep it weird the podcast for all things strange unusual supernatural paranormal creepy sticky gross scary and everything in between each week we sit down with an expert or friend and we talk about something weird this week it's just the two of us again just us Song gonna go. Just the two of us. And we are discussing the craziness of crimes of passion, mm-hmm. love affairs, murder, betrayal, cover ups, and more. It's been a minute since we dove into some true crime, and we are quite excited to get going. So here we go. My name is Lauren, and this is my gorgeous co host, Ashley. Hi, uh, I don't feel gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> you look it. You look it, darling. Um, yeah, we're we're having a weird day. We're both in jeans, which is weird. That never <laughs> happens. Ever, ever, we're ever. Always in leggings or just any of the stretchiest of pants. The stretchiest pants. We're both in denim. Sweats. Yeah, both in denim. Both stretchy denim too. Stretchy denim. Which yeah, <laughs> which that's our style. That's the best. <laughs> um, it was election day today, so that's got us feeling all kinds of weird. All kinds of uh drained. Yep. We're both yeah. coming off sickness, coming off Halloween season, all the things. Yeah, all the things. It's a weird day. I haven't been able to do laundry in two weeks. That is crazy <laughs> town. Really I can't get over that part. <laughs> yeah, they just won't come uh, and fix our washer and dryer. So Somebody fix wait, their washer. Please, please. I'm wearing jeans, for God's <laughs> sake. <laughs> she had to resort to jeans. Get over here and fix the washer. It's, this won't do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a time. It, and it's, also, it's we, you and I haven't even recorded an episode for like a month. Yeah, it's been a while because we were, I mean, guys, we were we doing were a great so job. Ahead. <laughs> September and October, <laughs> we're so we were so ahead. We got to take breaks. We had a nice little Halloween uh-huh. party. Just got to celebrate life. But now we're back in business. Now it's back to work. And now it's no nonsense, no, no messing around. Actually, no more laughter for the rest of nope. the episode. This is we're going to be very to serious. No more smiling. Um, and actually, I am excited to do true crime. Usually yeah. I'm like, nah, true crime, whatever. But it's been so long since we've done it a has. true crime episode that I'm pretty pumped. I have a couple things before we get into the true crime to cover today. First of all... First and foremost, we usually do this at the very end of the episode, but I wanted to do it at the beginning. Uh, I wanted to give a huge shout out to our patrons. Yes. Um, our We've newest, gotten a lot of new ones. Yeah, we have a ton of new ones. Our newest patrons being Sabrina Thompson, Woo. Jessica Hang, Woo. Nikki Zarnecki, hey. uh, the Histories, Mysteries, and Conspiracies podcast, Hello. which sounds really fucking cool. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
our $10 patrons who are starting this week going to be getting bonus episodes with the hilarious Amy Hanselman. Hansel Pants. Who you guys know from the, what was it, Unsolved Mysteries Unsolved Mysteries. Episodes. Yeah. One of So our she's going to be kind of replacing Handsome Joe. Handsome Joe will come on every once in a while, but she's going to kind of be taking taking the reins on that. That's so exciting. Um, so our $10 patrons, we've got Sister Julia. Yes. Thank you, Sister Julia. <laughs> uh, Rachel Goffinette, who is just the coolest. And I ha- also have to say congratulations on your marriage, Rachel <gasps> Goffinette. Congrats. Armando Alba, Jamie Moran, oh, yeah. Lance Davis, Corey Arnold, my sissy sissy, Jamie, uh, deep sea expert, Melanie. <laughs> who Hello, was on, Melanie. She actually, she's going to be on next season talking about deep sea creatures, but I she was on our, it was sort of like a hometown haunts, but for yeah. different home countries. She talked about yeah, our, she, her Armenian, Armenian culture, yeah. Mm-hmm, which was very cool. And Christine Renaud. But thank you also to Jeff Myers, Lacey <laughs> Erickson, Clarissa Sanchez. <laughs> Chris, I don't know Chris's last name, just Chris. <laughs> hey, Chris. <laughs> Feminist blogger Sam Pager, Michelle Kelly, Susie Shirklift, Kate Rand, Linda Bell, and one of our favorite artists, VHS Girl, who Woo! you should absolutely follow on Instagram. Love her. Sean Fritch, and always and forever, Andrew Miller, who has been supporting us since before we even realized uh, that we were going to have a podcast. We love you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Thank you all so, so much for donating to our show and helping us make it happen. I promise we will never forget this, even when we're rich and famous. For sure. We will ignore everyone except you guys. (laughs) (laughs) We're so thankful for the support, guys. It honestly means the world, and it's going to help us do so much more with the podcast. We have trips in the works that Mm -hmm. could be happening in the next couple weeks that you'll see. And (laughs) yeah, more investigations, just lots of exciting stuff to come. A ton of exciting stuff. And as you guys know, we have kind of uh, partially not willingly, but also partially chosen to not be a part of any sort of podcast networks that force us to put in ads for shit that we don't, care about about. (laughs) and uh, you guys donating to our patreon is what makes us able to actually do that so thank you and then also another thing i heard from lofty flapmouth if you recall she submitted the story um, about the haunted college Uh if you guys remember the story it was the story with uh, her keys went missing the water bottle flew across the room and the photo of Jesus being on the floor with the stab marks insanity <laughs> so uh, Lauren and I had asked each other kind of during the episode uh, during the recording of the episode whether it was in a frame and if the stab marks happened within the frame or if the glass was also broken and Lofty Flapmouth listened to the episode and she wrote us and said it was actually a photo printed on heavy cardstock that was tucked into her mirror. So it was not a Veronica situation, but still nope. very strange that it was found on the ground and stabbed. Yeah. When she doesn't have like a dog that chewed on it. No, or for sure. It's still so bizarre. So that's Ugh. crazy. <clears throat> Thanks for the update. Do you want to get into the crimes? Like today's crimes? Today's crimes. Yes, let's well, do it. <laughs> well, because I have one, if you'll allow me. Yes. Um, I have one that was sent in as a listener story. And I didn't end up sharing it, but it is true crime related and this is a true crime episode. So I was hoping I could. Cool. Please squeeze it in. So this was sent in from Reddit user Peachy Penguin. Ah, (laughs) I love that name. And they wrote, when I was about four years old, my family drove to Yosemite 
And it was a long drive for us. Three kids all under the age of seven plus two adults and a fuck ton of mountains will do that. <laughs> By the time we arrived at the motel, it was late. We were all cranky and we couldn't wait to get out of the car. But the moment we pulled in, something set my mom's teeth on edge and she insisted that we left and found another hotel reservation or not. My mom has always had this sixth sense like and her gut has actually saved us a couple times. But my dad was tired and convinced her to ignore her gut and stay for just the night. And the next morning we'd leave. I can remember my mom actually refusing to let go of our hands, making us stay right by our side as she kept looking around while checking in. To try and get her to relax, my dad suggested that we go to the pool, thinking it would calm her down. Well, when we got there, there were no towels, so my mom called the front desk. The moment that the man delivering the towels arrived, my mom immediately grabbed us out of the water and rushed us back to the room. The man gave her the absolute creeps, and she says there was just this feeling of pure evil when he looked at us. That night, my mom and dad pushed the dresser in front of the door and had us all sleep in the same bed. Good call. The next, yeah, no shit. The next morning, we left to go to another hotel, but my mom uh, couldn't stop talking about how evil that motel was. Uh, about a, two months later, she and my dad were up late watching the news when they started reporting on a man who had murdered a woman and two young girls in Yosemite. Just as my mom began to say, I bet it was at that motel, they showed Carrie Stainer's face <gasps> and said it occurred at the Cedar Lodge Motel. I remember yeah. this story. We talked about it. Carrie Stainer was the man who brought us our towels at the pool. Shut your damn mouth. Yeah, we never got back to Yosemite, and my mom is always insistent that we listen to our gut feeling, and when every bone in your body is telling you something is wrong, get the fuck out. Thank you, Peachy Penguin. I agree. I'm so glad it <laughs> ended up being that story because the second you said murders in Yosemite I was like it's gotta be like I'm yeah. praying well, it is Carrie Stainer Carrie Stainer's life for anyone who doesn't know I'll go over a couple things is crazy <laughs> crazy town he was born and raised a Mormon in California hmm. his younger brother Stephen was kidnapped by child molester Kenneth Parnell in 1972 when Carrie was 11 and held captive for eight years before escaping and being reunited with his family that'll fuck you up yeah uh kenneth parnell is also like a whole other story this yep. guy's fucked up like he kept steven for almost eight years steven escaped once and was returned to kenneth by the police it's bad <sighs> he escaped once again um once kenneth brought home another young boy Mm -hmm. And Stephen was like, I'm not letting this happen to another kid. And he took the kid and, and got out. And the police finally believed him the second time he escaped and had someone to corroborate his story. Uh, Kenneth was arrested and on trial in 1981 and was tried for kidnapping, but not sexual abuse because neither of the boys would admit at the time to being sexually assaulted. So he only went away for two years. In 2003, he was arrested again as a 71-year-old man. He was trying to coerce his caregiver into buying him a four-year-old boy. He claimed that he just, quote, wanted a family. Anyway, <laughs> that bastard died in jail. So back to Stainer, <laughs> whose Jeez. life already sucks. Like, yeah. he's a Mormon, and <laughs> that shit with his brother happened. Right. He's already um, living the And his brother ended life. up dying in a motorcycle accident, like, less than 10 years after he escaped. My God. So... 
Stainer was actually a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel, um, which is right outside, or at least was. I don't know if it's still around. I think it is. Right outside the Yosemite National Park. Mm-hmm. And between February and July of 1999, he murdered two women and two teenagers. Three of them were together and another right. the fourth was separate i'm trying to remember what episode we talked about this on because I, I read here's this, the thing. i read like a summary of the story i don't think i super did you yeah. i was gonna say because like you also listen to a lot of true crime podcasts right and so, so i was going like, we talked about this i'm like no we didn't well i was going back <laughs> and, and forth stone did. <laughs> it was sword and scale scale sword um, the stone <laughs> no and a lot of times i'm like oh i've heard about this was it because of us but i'm positive i talked about this but i'm trying to remember why I would have brought this up. Well, did you you did murders when we talked about California, didn't you? Yep. Is that's that it? it? That's totally yeah. it. it I wish to they be. all could be California ghouls. <laughs> that has to be it, right? I assume. That would make sense. Because I think I did do murdery ones. Yeah. That would I make did sense. monsters. Okay. Yeah, you're always the cryptid queen. So that has to be it. I was like, I, I know. know I've talked about them before. Okay. <laughs> now yeah, I he, feel he okay killed, in my life. Um, he killed a woman and her 15-year-old daughter and their travel companion who was a 16-year-old student. And then another woman, a 26-year-old uh, Yosemite Institute employee. And he sent letters to the police, right? Mm-hmm. He sent a letter to the police saying like, oh, I had fun with this one when right. he was talking about the youngest victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who he decapit- decapitated, I believe. It was mm. brutal. They were oh, found horribly... Um, yeah and like the the hotel is actually what led them to Carrie Stainer which I can't believe he was there giving those people I towels know. that's the nuttiest he confessed to the four murders no idea if he's killed more but he did confess to those four and after his arrest he claimed that he had fantasized about murdering women since he was seven years old nice. which was long before the abduction of his brother man oh man so that family's so, just like yeah, sorry he- was either really just unlucky. like mentally ill, maybe mm-hmm. had a head trauma, as we know. Oh. Those are contributing factors. Who knows? Poor yeah. kid. He's um he's actually still alive. He's been on death row since two thousand two. He's at San Quentin. Um, and he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, which is something that we are We're gonna talk about, about today. So uh he obviously it didn't work. Yeah, I was like that <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work for him. No. Uh, <laughs> not but at all. That's what he said. <clears throat> That's what his lawyer said anyway. That's what's fascinating about crimes of passion and why I'm excited that's our like little true crime category today because the whole reason of insanity thing is used as a defense in so uh-huh. many cases, but there are a few where it's like they truly were in like a blackout yeah, because there was something of yeah, that something happened. happened, yeah. Well, yeah, that's one thing we should talk about first. What is a crime of passion technically? I think a lot of people think crime of passion means like a lover's quarrel, but Mm -hmm. passion has nothing to do with sex or love in this situation. Mm -hmm. Passion can be anything from, I mean, it's, it's rage. Yeah. Essentially. It's like Which, you're blinded by rage. In most of the stories, I don't know about you, in most of mine, it does have to do oh, with yeah. lovers. It's almost <laughs> always about lovers because right. they're the only person that can drive you to that. Exactly. Level of like insanity. the line of love and hate. Yeah. <laughs> so it's either like lovers or parents and children. Yep. That's so true. You have to love something so much to become that enraged. <laughs> yeah. It's a crazy, crazy thing. Basically, it is a crime in which the perpetrator commits the act against someone because of a sudden strong impulse, most often rage, rather than as a premeditated crime. 
They are usually committed by people who don't have a criminal record. Uh, those people are almost 100% of the time caught. Most of them turn themselves in, but even in cases where they don't, the crimes are usually very sloppy because they're so impulsive, can sometimes be exceptionally violent because they literally are incapable of self-control for the duration of the act. They just see smoke. They're yeah, just angry. it's just like they're seeing red and all of a sudden yeah. they like open their eyes and they're, they've murdered someone. Ooh. Um, and then I did have a little something on the prosecution. Like you said, the defense for these crimes is usually provocation or temporary insanity. Mm-hmm. And provocation is when they take the preceding set of events into account, specifically when they are events that may cause a reasonable person to lose self-control. Right. Um This doesn't stop the defendant from being guilty of a crime, but it more often than not leads to a lesser punishment like manslaughter or voluntary Voluntary manslaughter. Uh, And then usually like psychiatric evaluation as well. Yeah. Uh, Provocation is a completely different charge than self-defense, which is the right to defend your life or the lives of others with the use of deadly force if necessary. Provocation is a pretty controversial concept for a lot of reasons. One, civilized people are expected to control their behavior even when they're angry and not act on those impulses, sure. like murdery impulses. That's a normal thing to expect. Two, provocation creates a culture of blaming the victim, mm-hmm. i.e., I didn't mean to rape her, but she was wearing a short skirt and flirting with me. Fuck off. Yeah. Three, provocation laws are very difficult to enforce since the victim is usually dead and can't present their version of the events. Right. And also because what is considered provocation is subjective. What would provoke me may not provoke you Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And um, actually, women's rights groups and the LGBT community have been highly critical of this because in many cases, it legitimizes or trivializes male violence against women by reinforcing the view as, of women as men's property. Mm. Um, like, you know, if she hadn't continued to nag, I wouldn't have beat her to death. Right. Uh, and maintains and justifies homophobia and discrimination against gay men specifically. For example, he came on to me, what was I supposed to do? Not stab him? Sure. You know? Ugh. That is a dangerous defense. Yeah, they, it's rough. not used often. Very often, yeah. No. Uh, it's it's not a great used argument. in very, very, very sp- specific cases because it's just not sound right and then the less controversial and more used defense is that of temporary insanity like Mm -hmm. you said which argues that the defendant was insane during the crime but later regained their sanity after the act was carried out and uh, i actually have a fun thing the very first time this defense was used successfully was in 1859 after oh. a U.S. congressman. Of course, it has something to do with a politician. <laughs> right? Like, of course. Naturally. Um, Daniel Sickles killed his wife's... Name. I know. Sickles. Daniel Sickles killed his wife's lover, Philip Burton Key, by shooting him in Lafayette Park right across the street from the White House. Uh, Sickles actually ended up being acquitted of the crime, which is crazy. Most of the time it brings the murder conviction down, like I said, to like voluntary manslaughter. Under United States (laughs) law, it's not permitted to plead insanity in state court in Idaho, Kansas, Montana, and Utah. Interesting. So if you're going to snap and kill your husband, don't do it Don't do it. 
in those states because they don't <laughs> allow you out. to plead that. You can <laughs> still so attempt weird. to demonstrate that the defendant was not capable of forming intent to commit a crime. Okay. But, but you um, can't plead insanity. No. Uh, but yeah, you have to have like a, a pre-existing like mental illness. Okay. So wow. that's kind of crazy. Both of these defenses are very risky and should... Uh, should. I'm acting like just in case you're trying one of these lawyers. <laughs> if you're going to you go know, out. They're usually only used as a last resort because the right, problem is. When there's nothing else. Yeah. Like I said, in most cases, there's no preparation. So these crimes aren't premeditated, which means the crimes are sloppy and the perpetrators are easy to nail. So usually there's proof. A lot of the time involving a willing confession or witnesses and the jury is a group of people. This is one thing I just have to bring up because, you know, Making a Murderer 2 just came out. And I also just watched all of Cold Justice. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been seeing this a lot lately. But the jury is made up of the group of the pe- people that make the guilty or not gu- guilty decision in the end. And the jury is made up of a group of people who are not psychologists. So right. psych psychiatrists have to come in and give their testimony on the case but they're not the ones ultimately making the decision Mm -hmm. so pleading temporary insanity and the the problem becomes as well that in in the united states we have guilty and not guilty which is a problem all in its own because it is the job of the prosecution to prove that beyond reasonable doubt this person is guilty right the defendant is just there to defend their client. They do not right. have to prove. Doesn't have to be. We anything. are not guilty. They They're just saying like, just don't give us prove, the guilty. Yeah, that yeah. they just have to prove that there's reasonable doubt. Yeah, That's it. Exactly. So, like in Australia, it's what is it? It's guilty and not proven. Which that is sounds what it so is. much better. Yeah, that's, that's what exactly it is what in it the is. United States as well. But we phrase it as guilty and not guilty. So you have something like you know the Stephen Avery case mm-hmm. or uh, the staircase. What was I was that just guy? thinking yeah. the staircase Peterson. Uh, no. Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Peterson. Right? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not sure. Correct us. The staircase case. I'm gonna Google it really well, quick. But keep talking. Yeah. No, <laughs> I was just but, gonna say um, owl. In that case, like there was so much. Like I get it. He seemed guilty. Yeah. The problem was. But there wasn't reasonable doubt. There's so much reasonable doubt in that case where it was like. It is Peterson. Michael Peterson. Michael Peterson. Yeah. I mean, there's so much reasonable doubt. I. Oh, you're saying there is yeah, doubt. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what I said. I was on your side. <laughs> I, was I don't know what I said, but I agreed with you. Yeah, I'm on your side. Yeah. I was Googling. Um, yeah, you yes. can't prove that there's, there's there were too absolutely many questions. no doubt that he did it because there's too many questions. So therefore, the prosecution has failed. You either have to say not guilty because mm-hmm. he is not proven guilty. You can have a retrial. Right. Um, but the prosecution failed. Right. So anyway, that one idiot um, doing his blood splatter tests. I mean, that was just a nightmare and a half. I know. I can't even talk about our court system. It makes me so angry. Um. Anyways, that was all I had. Was like kind of the difference in the two. Oh no, that was interesting. Um, cases, but yeah, we're talking about crimes of passion today, and we're kind of talking about some lesser known. Mine are pretty obscure crimes of passion that you probably have never heard of, but some of the famous ones. Please yeah. remind us of Lorena Bobbitt. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> this one is perfect because we were just talking about reason of insanity, and this is a case where it completely worked. And actually, I do 
believe that she was in a complete blackout. So for those of you who don't know, but I'm sure you've heard of it, Lorena Bobbitt on June, I forget the exact day, but in June 1993, Lorena Bobbitt chopped off her husband's penis. <laughs> the full story is that John Wayne Bobbitt, her husband, came home. She what? I said, you bet she did. You bet she did. <laughs> Came home in like a drunken rage and began to rape her and sexually assault her. And she just couldn't take it anymore. Apparently this had been happening quite consistently. She went to the kitchen, grabbed a knife, chopped off his penis, took the penis with her, got mm. in her car, fled the scene, and threw the penis out the window <laughs> on a random road, which I think is like, it's not hilarious. It is. It's, it's hilarious. It's, I'm it sorry. Is. It's funny. Like what? Sorry, what, guy. Lorena? I know. Sorry, dude. Um, They were then, able to reattach it. They did. I was just going to say, she you know, actually was the fine. one to call the police when she, she kind of like came to. So this is what I'm saying. Like, I feel like she was truly in a blackout rage when this was happening. And then how she says it is she kind of came to and was like, what the fuck did I just do? Mm-hmm. Called the police, told them the general area she thought the penis was. They went out and found it. And the guy was able to have it reattached to his body. So great. What's his toes? John Wayne Bobbitt was acquitted of the rape. They weren't able to prove that he did rape her. But Lorena was it was proven or like enough that in court that they believed she was temporarily insane. And she did not get convicted of murder because they believed that she had been traumatized by the emotional and physical abuse of her husband. Yeah. And had, it was very clear that she had been through something and was very remorseful for what she did and could only defend it by saying, I just, I had nowhere else to go. Like his penis was the one thing that was hurting me and scaring me and I needed to get rid of it. Yeah. So they said, okay, we believe you. You had a moment of insanity. We're sending you to 45 days of psychiatric help and she's still alive didn't, today. Um, didn't he do porn later? He did. Yes. That's okay. what's crazy. Like, so like crazy or did he do porn? No. So this is what's funny about the afterlife is now Lorena goes around the world and is an advocate for domestic abuse and is like right. speaking out for women doing wonderful things. John Wayne Bobbitt went on to be in porn. Yeah. So oh my God. he sucks. And there were tons of friends of Lorena's that came forward, I think during the case, but a lot came forward after saying that John was yeah, the worst. And he was absolutely abusing her and it was all terrible. Well, so it can't sucks say that, I feel bad for you, John. Exactly. I'm like, <laughs> it sucks that he Sounds was acquitted like you of you, uh, the sexual assault. Coming. But you yeah. got your penis chopped off. So. You got your dick chopped. That is such a good example of a crime of passion where you're just like, fuck, I, here we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and they use temporary insanity. Yep. And it well, works. Well, that's another thing that um, people are trying to... Trying to redefine the law of provocation because, or not the law, the defense of provocation because we need to, I'm not saying we as in like, this is my opinion, but it is my opinion, but it's a lot of people's opinions that um, the court needs to redefine uh, the defense in cases of abuse specifically men abusing women over periods of time and the women killing these men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, unless usually they don't kill them during an attack. So it can't be self-defense because they aren't actually in that moment defending their lives Mm -hmm. because they can't overcome them. They can't overpower them. They are stronger. They are bigger. They are faster. Mm -hmm. So 
the men will, you know, beat the shit out of their wife or rape their wife or do whatever and go to sleep and they get their dick cut off or they get yep. shot by their wife or chopped up with an axe. And it is a form of they're not insane. Yep. It is technically self-defense. But, you know, so many people would argue, well, you should have just left. And it's yeah. like, well, how, I've left a million times. It's like you don't simple. understand the psychology of being in that a relationship and being in an abusive relationship right. and having children involved and blah, 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 it's blah. It's so blah. dangerous to say, why didn't you just leave to oh, a woman? Like, of just, course, I they've can't. thought of yeah. that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you think they're like, oh, you're things. right. I could have walked out the door, but <laughs> yeah. I decided to chop them up. No. A million strings so attached. So they're trying to like redefine provocation to represent those situations yeah where that makes sense it's not necessarily self-defense because it's not in the moment yeah but it's it also not temporary asleep. insanity necessarily because you also so, kind of thought about it because <laughs> you also thought about it. you probably thought about it a lot like i need to wait till he's asleep and you know at least lessening the sentence for women who you know yeah because you should still be in trouble if you chop up your husband you in should sleep, get but, in a little bit of trouble but let's look at the background and like <laughs> yeah. what was he doing to you before we got here exactly but, what yeah, was with happening the before. with the penis, they with the penis <laughs> with the penis situation. They like looking into their relationship, well, and especially and, looking into the fact that she literally like called the police and was like, "I can't believe this is what I did." Right, like yeah. she just getting to know her and through the questioning, they clearly realized like, "Oh, you are very much of sane mind now." I think you were absolutely you going it. through a, a minute or something. Yeah. Uh, another famous uh, crime of passion. Uh, that's on a ton of crime of passion lists that you probably know about. Um, is you know this name, Butterfuco, Joey Butterfuco. Never forget Butterfuco. Uh, human potato head, yep. Joey Butterfuco. On May nineteenth, nineteen ninety two, Amy Fisher went to Joey Butterfuco's house and informed his wife, Mary Joe Butterfuco, about his infidelity. Amy Fisher was sleeping with Joey Butterfuco. This human piece of lard trash garbage <laughs> person disgusting first of all he's not attractive second no. of all he's a grease ball third yep. of all his name's joey butterfuco which it sounds is like a lie the worst <laughs> but amy fisher told his wife that they were sleeping together and amy fisher it doesn't say here but amy fisher was very young Right. She was like she was a teenager. She looked really young. She was she was definitely a teenager, but I don't know if it was like 18 or 16. And how old was was Joey? Joey Buttafuoco at the time. I mean, he was he was in his 40s. He's 62 now. And this was in 1992. Okay. Yeah. Oh, these are around the same time. Wow. What? Oh, Hello. they were actually. I remember the nineties. They were both in "I Love the Nineties on VH1. <laughs> yeah, they were. So Amy Fisher uh. went to his house, told his wife that he was uh, sleeping with her, and then she, Amy Fisher, shot Mary Jo Butterfuoco in the face. Hot damn! In, in the, the, face. the face. But the in best the part face. is, is that Mary Jo did not die. Nope. Didn't it barely phased her? <laughs> like she's fine. No, that was nothing. She's like bitch, and then she ran her off. And uh, Mary Jo worked out because she ended up. I know she divorced Joey Buttafuoco. I think she stood by him during the trial when they were trying to convict Amy Fisher, mm-hmm. but but she left his ass. Thank, thank God. Thank God. Get out of there. Yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> it's just so funny to be like, I got shot in the face, but I'm good. She literally was just like. Bye, bitch. <laughs> Listen, I'm trying to see what happened to Amy Fisher. Yeah, After Amy Fisher's assault conviction, 
Butterfuco is indicted on 19 counts of statutory rape, sodomy, and endangering the welfare of a child. Who, Joey? Joey. My Joey? My Joey. My Butterfuco. (laughs) He later changed his plea to guilty, admitting he had sex with Fisher when she was 16 and that he had known her age at the time. He was sentenced to six months jail time. That's it. What? He was released after serving four months and nine days. (sighs) Um, after his release from prison, Joey and Mary Jo Buttafuoco moved to California, where Mary Jo filed divorce papers. Good Yay. for you. Good for you. Unrelated charges. What? <laughs> what else? What? Happened? Ooh, I got to tell you more about Joey Buttafuoco. <laughs> tell me so, more. Three years later, he pleaded no contest to a solicitation of prostitution <laughs> charge, was fined and placed on probation. In 2004, he was sentenced to a year in jail and five years of probation after lead, pleading guilty to an auto insurance fraud. This guy's a winner. Oh my gosh, he truly is human garbage. Yeah. As part of the sentence, he's prohibited from working in the auto body industry of California for the rest of his life. Well, good. Which, great. I'm um, glad I won't run into it. Yeah. In August 2005, he was charged with illegal... Pr- illegal possession of ammunition as a convicted felon he's legally not permitted to own ammunition yeah that's pretty much it so it's just a piece of shit on and on and on garbage man amy fisher yeah what's she up to i know i gotta find out oh that's a bad picture amy (laughs) um she's 44 okay (laughs) um she's out of prison all right Living life. She's living her life. Let's see. Did she do porn too? Mm. <laughs> what if her and John oh, no. Bobbitt were in a video together? If they were, I will shit myself. We'll look at She up. served seven years in prison for shooting Mary Jo Buttafugo in the face. Uh, she became a columnist for the Long Island Press. Of course she did. Long Jeez. Island. Of course it was um, Long Island. In 2006, Fisher reunited with Mary Jo Buttafuoco in oh. sessions televised for Entertainment Tonight. What? Interesting. What? Oh. In 2007, <laughs> Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco met for dinner in Port Jefferson, Shut Long Island. Up. No, they didn't. Oh. Oh, okay. No. No. Okay. Did they or didn't they? But in June and July of 2011, Amy Fisher appeared as a cast member in the fifth season of the reality television series Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. That's Here's the thing. They didn't meet up for dinner? That part was They did meet up for dinner, but it was saying something about a potential reality TV show, and then it Uh, just, like, didn't go anywhere. Thank God. I thought you were going to say surreal life, but that's just Celebrity Rehab. So, basically, what you've learned from the first half hour of this um, episode is that... (laughs) If you commit a crime in the 90s, you will be successful in film and television. (laughs) You're going to have a career. You're going to be just fine. fine. You're fine. (laughs) Everything's fine. OJ happened in the 90s, too. It did, right? Like 92 or 94. But we've talked about this before. Actually, it was a very funny interaction because Lauren was like, we should briefly mention OJ. And I was like, that asshole planned that shit. And she was like, yeah, but passionately <laughs> he planned it in passion no he did i mean he came over with a knife from his house so he was like he knew but he also was driving like 90 miles an hour like running over medians to get over there so he was feeling passionate he was feeling passionate that's that's for sure but oj sucked for a very long yeah, time well. so he he was always up to no good okay so i mean those are the famous ones those just to give you some examples ones. 
And that's why we summarize slash we're like reading them live on Google. But <laughs> we did research some more obscure ones that you you may have heard of, but you may not have. We're going to see what happens. Okay, so I'll go first yeah, with... Yeah, let's go backsies and forcies. Backsies and forcies. <laughs> this is Martha Freeman, the story of Martha Freeman, which you know like a little bit about. I know about, a little bit about this one, I, but I don't know the whole thing. I did not, and I was very excited. Okay, so this takes place back in 2004, so not too long ago. Great in year. Brentwood, t- great year. In Brentwood, Tennessee, um, which is a very upscale neighborhood of Tennessee, very nice area. Martha and Jeffrey Freeman were a couple that seemed to have it all together. They lived in this lovely neighborhood. They had a company together. It was really random. The company did background checks of people who wanted to run apartment complexes. Oh, that, like um, like apartment managers? Yeah, like if they're like, oh, I want to be the manager of this building, like the landlord, whatever, probably more of a manager, not a landlord, but yeah, then he'd have to like do the background checks and that's what his company did. Oh, so super random, but okay. it was well, his successful. company. Yeah, and it was doing well. And Martha worked there and helped him run it and did like all the filing and everything. And so they were known as this successful couple. They Everyone thought the relationship looked so good from the outside. Everyone wanted to be them. Jeffrey was known as being like this big teddy bear. Just everyone thought he was the jolliest, like sweetest man, would do anything for his wife. Such a loving husband. So Jeffrey had it all together. Then Martha, on the other hand, secretly was just not finding joy in this marriage at all. I think she put on a good show in the office and in front of friends, but she was taking prescription drugs like crazy, trying to just get by, and she pretty much couldn't go a day without taking her pills. So she was. I have a question about her. Sure, Martha. Yeah, it took place. You said in Tennessee. Yeah, Tennessee. Tennessee. Was she born and raised in that town or very close by? Close by. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, that, that just sounds that sounds about right. That sounds about like someone who never left like their I'm just hometown stuck. and married a guy really young and had a kid or two or a business with him yep. and dreamed of a better life and yeah. she wanted self medicated. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly like where the story takes us is she was just always looking for more. She couldn't get through the day without her drugs and she was just looking for more excitement. So things really took a turn on the 4th of July that 2004. Martha and Jeffrey booked a hotel room in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, trying to have a romantic night, rekindle the relationship, do something nice. Um, But then they get downtown. They're at a fireworks show. They're like amongst a bunch of people at a big downtown party. And Jeffrey tells her, okay, it's getting late. I'm actually really tired. Maybe let's forego the hotel room and just go home. Like, I'm exhausted. She gets angry and says, you go home. I want to continue to go out. Like, we're in Nashville. I'm going to go out on the town. We already have this hotel room, so I'm staying. Yeah, why would you? If you're tired, why? Okay. I know. Go to your hotel room. This is the part where I'm like, Jeffrey, what are you doing? But he did. He went back home to Brentwood. and she sounds like he was in a bad mood. Yeah, they probably got in a fight. Yeah. Something happened. So Jeffrey goes home to Brentwood, and Martha stays out. She is partying in downtown Nashville and she meets three Hispanic men and invites them all up to her hotel room Oh, and Martha. has sex with all Martha. of them, all three of them at the same time. Well, you got your excitement. She Martha. got her excitement in Nashville of all places. <laughs> um, one of the men is Rafael Rocha Perez. Martha fell for Rafael fast and decided he was going to be more than just a one night orgy, one night okay. stand. Um, and they kept their relationship going secretly for a little bit. 
Perez didn't speak a word of English and Martha didn't speak a word of Spanish, but they decided they spoke the language of love, you know? Oh, yeah, that's what that language is. <laughs> and they just had sex all the it's time. Not, that's all they did. It's not spoken with your mouth. <laughs> it was penis and vagina language. <laughs> so they continued their affair. Gross, Lauren. I don't know what they talked about. Um, Martha... Eventually even leaves Jeffrey. It started as a secret affair, but then she straight up said, bye, and goes to live in a hotel, really seedy motel, I should actually say, with Perez. They lived together for a full six months. Again, what did they talk about or have in common besides sex? Like, what did this relationship look like? I want to be a fly on the wall. What a, do you? So no. Do you want to be a fly on the wall? No, I, I don't that see any of that. That is a smelly hotel room. <laughs> no, it's no, so it is. Bad. Go on. So, so they're living together for six months. They begin to run out of money, of course, because like, what are they doing? And Martha realizes she can't go on just living with this man in a hotel. They have no resources, no real plan. She uh, doesn't have a job anymore. No, they're like useless. So Martha goes back to Jeffrey, of course. And begs for forgiveness like the slut she is. That's, I know we shouldn't call women sluts, but come on, this lady. So come she on, goes back to poor Jeffrey and begs for his forgiveness. Jeffrey does invite her back into the home reluctantly um, after lots of arguing. But he says, I don't think I'm ready to have you back in the master bedroom, sleep in the guest room, but we'll work on this. So they're starting in separate rooms, but they are going to work on their marriage They barely see each other due to Jeffrey's crazy work schedule with the company. And basically their marriage is just the two of them being roommates in this huge house and like seeing each other for five seconds in the morning. Um, Then things really take a crazy turn. Martha, instead of working on her marriage like a good little girl, secretly starts bringing Perez back with her to the house and eventually decides to keep him living in her bedroom closet. Where Jeffrey can't find him. She sets up a little makeshift bed and Perez literally sleeps in this tiny little closet for months in this guest room. Jeffrey spends most of the day and evenings at work and he doesn't even notice anything is happening. It's rare he even goes into this bedroom that Martha's staying in for longer than like a minute or two. So the affair keeps carrying on. Perez lives in this closet for a couple of months without being found, which is insane. Months. Months. I think it was just like two months. But what months? The evening of April 10th, 2005, Jeffrey finally hears a strange noise coming from the bedroom. It sounded like this. Ah. I know. Actually, they Ah. were asleep. I think he was snoring really loud or like just knocking around in the closet. But he was like, what is that? Tossing and turning in his little closet bed. (laughs) His tiny closet. So Jeffrey gets up in the middle of the night to go investigate. He comes in. He sees Martha is asleep, but he hears something clearly coming from the closet, opens the door and finds Perez, this little Hispanic man sleeping in the closet. He's extremely confused and angry, starts screaming at Martha, screaming at Perez, asking for answers. Quickly, Martha comes forward and says, I'm sleeping with this man. Just, I think, just to be like, don't like think he's an intruder. Right. He's my lover. Attack him. Um, so Jeffrey starts freaking out, but he's not a murderer. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go blow off some steam. I'm going to go walk the dog, walk around the block, get some air. When I come back, this man better be fuck out of my house. So Jeffrey goes for his walk. Sadly, when Jeffrey returns after his walk, he is confronted by the two lovers and is bludgeoned to death by the end of a shotgun in Uh. Martha's bathroom. He was also strangled with a telephone cord and had a garbage bag placed around his head. He was left for dead on the bathroom floor. 
he was only gone for I think like a couple of minutes like he wanted to come back pretty quickly so they like just rushed him out of the blue um Martha took 17 hours to call the police regarding her husband's body okay. she first decided to have sex with Perez several times run some errands she went to the pharmacy and got a prescription filled you know for those pills and she took the dog out for a couple of walks and then she finally ran over to her neighbor's house and threw her lover Perez totally under the bus and said there's a man at my house and he murdered my husband and she completely played the victim and her and the neighbor called the police together when Martha talked to the police, she was immediately suspicious. Like, when she first walked in there, her claim was, I don't know what happened. I walked in, and this ex-lover of mine had killed my husband. I just, I walked in, and I saw it. But then as she continued to be questioned, she started to reveal very specific details about the death and how he was placed and things about the telephone cord. And she basically knew moment for moment what happened with the death. So... They were like, you're absolutely a suspect. So yeah, her, you 100% at least witnessed this. Yeah, even if Perez did it, you were standing right there. So they both become suspects. Martha Freeman and Rafael Racho Perez were both accused of first-degree murder, and it only took a jury two hours to deliberate <laughs> and find both of them guilty and sentenced to life in prison. They had nothing going for them, zero doubt of their guilt with this. Um, there was no chance of insanity in this case being um, the reason for Martha still being in prison is because she was cleared to be of sane mind. I think they did try to bring it in at one point, but she was completely sane. Um, this woman was simply a selfish drug addicted, evil lady who yeah. threw both men. She once loved under the bus completely. And yeah, I mean, selfish is you, the best word to describe yeah, her. Absolutely. She just you might to be able ahead. to claim temporary insanity. If she, went immediately over to a neighbor and was like, oh my God, I got out of right. hand. I don't know what happened. But, but 17, she, 17 hours, hours Yeah, And she had sex with this guy a couple more times. First of all, okay, here's the deal. I've been in relationships for many years <laughs> and they were together for like nine months. Yep. They're still fucking like rabbits. I know. I really. Are we sure? Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll believe it, I guess. All right. Who says so? I mean, I guess if that's the only thing you have to do because you can't speak each other's language. I was going to say it's because they have nothing but to But I'd talk be about. like, I would have taught him a couple words like pancakes. Right. <laughs> Waffles. Waffles. Syrup. Um. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And I mean, this definitely, the reason I think it can go in the crime of passion category is that, you know, it was this moment of they had just been found out and their reaction was like murder options and yeah. they chose a horrible murder exactly perez yeah. could have left the house as he was asked to to be respectful to this woman's husband martha could have chilled the fuck out and talked to her husband mm -hmm. been like hey i know i've been terrible i'm gonna leave you officially and go with this guy but instead they chose murder and bludgeoned him yeah, to death because it's not like him. he attacked them no he just came back and was like hey so what did we decide on? Like, <laughs> so what did we poor decide? Poor Jeffrey. And then, yeah, bludgeoned <laughs> to death. And th But that's why the jury was able to convict them so quickly was the leaving him for 17 hours without yeah. doing a thing was like, you're a horrible human yeah, being. Yeah, you might not have planned this ahead of time, but you definitely, you definitely planned like what you were going to do next. Right. You weren't in just a, a crazy blackout. You had almost a full day to do something Make a good. decision. Yeah. Um, so I actually chose this one and I did a lot of research on this man, 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 this man. Um, and I 
it comes okay this story comes up on just about every crime of passion list that you can find but they always leave out an entire half of the story is this george this is george okay i don't know a lot so i'm excited so uh his name is george jefferson hassel and george was born in 1888 so this is a much older story um he was born in 1888 in smithville texas not too much is known about his early life or how he was raised because it was the fucking 1800s mm-hmm. and who knows. But what we do know is that he was a piece of shit. Yeah. He got a girl pregnant when he was a teenager but abandoned her and the child. Cool. He enlisted in the Merchant Marines but had to serve a prison term for desertion. He met, married, and divorced several women. Uh, his brother died by being kicked in the head by a mule because Texas, and he <laughs> is Texas. He married his brother's widow. Oh gosh! Which I don't know. That's really creepy to me. It is, but whatever. Unless the- your brother <laughs> says, "Like you take care of my woman, you marry woman. her when I die." That's the only time. <laughs> as an interesting character, you just Thank you. Up with. Yeah, I think that's creepy, Joseph. but live your truth. So, um, on the night of December fifth, nineteen twenty-six. Um, so basically, so he married his brother's widow. Brother's widow, okay. I'm and she already had kids. So his nephews and nieces became his children. Ugh, that's weird. They also had a couple children as well. Okay. So there's lots of kids, lots of kids. running around. Yes. So on the night of December 5th, 1926, Hassel's wife confronted him about his, quote, involvement with her underage daughter. Apparently, her daughter had come forward and said that George had forced himself upon her a handful of times. Well, his response to her confrontation was to strike her in the face repeatedly with a ball-peen hammer, effectively killing her. Oh, God. After the murder of his wife, he moved between each member of the family's beds using a straight razor and stockings to kill them in order from youngest to oldest. Now, I don't actually know if that's a fact or a rumor, because at the time, the technology we had to determine the time of death was uh, very poor. Right. And their so bodies weren't the found order. for days, actually weeks. So I don't understand how they would know the order. Unless right. he just confessed to it later. Sure. So who knows? Yeah. And also, wouldn't it make sense to kill them in order of oldest to youngest if you were doing something like that? Because the oldest kid was 21, so I feel like killing the oldest first would make more sense. But now I'm sounding like a serial killer. <laughs> no, but, but now you're I'm right. Like a like, get the strongest, yeah. oldest person out of the way Because the kids first. ranged from 21 years to 22 months. Oh, my gosh. So why, yeah. wouldn't, why, why wouldn't you, you get, wait like, the older to kids kill out of the, the way? Oh, gosh. We do sound like we're yeah, this a murder. A okay, we're going to talk about. Move on. Um, so... Yes, uh, apparently when he woke the two oldest boys, age 21 and 15, a scuffle ensued and he ended up killing them with a shotgun and an axe. All of the bodies were then stored in the newly dug root cellar by the house. And when all was said and done, he had killed all nine members of his family. Ugh. So sad. Um, so that's kind of the story that's always listed. Right. But this is what you find when you actually do research. Mm-hmm. He had told members of the church and members of the town that his family and he were returning to Oklahoma, where his wife was from, and he successfully sold off all their belongings in a yard sale. And during the auction, actually, a wagon ran over the sinkhole where his entire family was buried, and people started to become skeptical, and they got law enforcement involved. 
Hassel attempted suicide by stabbing himself in the chest, but survived, and excavations of the cellar revealed nine family members aged 41, 21, 15, 13, 11, 7, 6, 4, and 22 months. The 22 months just kills me. That's so sad. So this piece of shit claimed that the act was a crime of passion and that he killed the children to protect himself. Sure. I assume because he maybe killed his wife in a crime of passion and then was like, my only option is to kill all eight children that I care for. Zero sense. Uh, But a psychiatric report at the time characterized him as a sociopath. Uh, There was a pretty short trial and he was sentenced to death. And apparently later, um, before he was killed, they found out that he had actually murdered another family in california a whole this other family yeah one of his uh it, they weren't officially married but it was a common law wife so they had been married for they've been together for like 10 years this was before his brother's before widow his oh brother's widow um he killed her and her children he said that he and her had been quote joking around when he suddenly found himself choking her then he choked her three kids to death Police went back to Whittier, California, where the murder supposedly took place and dug up the cellar of their former home and found four bodies. So he's not a great guy. He got the chair. And this case is known as a crime of passion, but that's mostly, I think, because they didn't, one, they didn't know about serial killers really at the time. And also they didn't realize what they were dealing with at the time. Yeah, not at Um, all. I do believe that the actual murders were murders, like the actual murders of his wives were murders of like uncontrollable rage. Right. Uh, brought about actually, I think, due to the confrontation over his child molestation. I think he was a, I think he was a pedophile. Yeah. It and I like think it. that he was marrying and all these women and, and to get to the kids that weren't his. And then it, it seems as though. When he's confronted, he lashes out and kills people. Right. Uh, but I disagree with the classification because he seems to feel absolutely no remorse after he right. murders them. It's not like, oh my gosh, I was just in the heat of it. Yeah, he's no, he did it once. Guy. He buried them under his house. He married another woman with kids and, did it, and again. did it again and buried them in the yard and then sold their stuff and was planning to like get away with it a second time. Move on with his life. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he's a serial killer. I feel like it's not necessarily like a crime of passion, but it shows up on like every list. No, it does. That's how I knew about him. I feel like he, he's a crime of passion man on the surface, but then you just have to dig a little deeper and be a little deeper. And you're like, Oh shit. This is like an actual serial killer. This man killed nine, 13 people. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. He is pure evil. Yeah, he was not a good guy. And he was Damn. creepy looking. He had this really big smile. I did not like the way he looked. <laughs> Anyone who smiles that big. Anyone who smiles that big. I Sorry, don't trust Joe. it. <laughs> he does have a big smile. Joe has a very big serial Joe, killer smile. you're up to no good. <laughs> you're up to no good. <laughs> we see that smile. Okay, this is the case of Celeste Beard and Tracy Tarleton. And this one I, I like put. I like that name. It's fun. Tarleton. Tracy Tarleton. Um, I put crime of passion or planned murder, question mark, question because, mark? well, I mean, I think we'll be able to draw a conclusion at the end of this. It's pretty straightforward, but still to this day, some people have doubts. So I take you to Austin, Texas. 
three-time divorcee and mother of two twin girls, finds herself a new lover at a local country club here in Austin, Texas. She's a waitress, 32 years old, and her name is Celeste. At the time, it was Celeste Martinez, I believe. She'd been married three times, so I'm not sure which last name she had. (laughs) Uh, Then she meets a 69-year-old, very wealthy man named Stephen Beard, a retired broadcasting exec. He is a millionaire just looking for a young woman companion to keep him company. She's young and probably just wants a shit ton of his money. Yeah. They fall in love and get married in 1995, back to the 90s. The tw- I love the 90s. <laughs> I love the 90s. 3D. I right? loved that joke. Part yeah. Because then there was, I love the 80s. Oh, the- strikes back. Strikes back, yeah. <laughs> I love the 70s. <laughs> oh, yeah. That one was so 70s. groovy. <laughs> okay. Anyways, great show. <laughs> great show. Highly <laughs> recommend it. They fall in love and get married in 1995. Um, the twins, the two daughters of Celeste, loved Stephen and took to him right away. He was known widely as a very kind and loving man. He had a wonderful relationship with his first wife, and they were married for 45 years before she died of cancer, sadly, uh, in 1993, right before Stephen met Celeste. So he was actually a good dude, despite this woman clearly wanting to be with him for his money. Right. I mean, oh gosh. I know. Yeah, he just wanted a he companion. Just wanted he lost his wife of 45 I years. Know. That makes me want to scream. It's really God. sad. So, Stephen's kids did not take kindly to Celeste. Surprise, surprise. They could see that their dad was happy, so they were trying to be supportive. They're like, it's late in his life, and he seems to be thrilled with this woman. So, we'll let it go. But everyone could see this woman was a gold digger, and she also seemed a little unstable. There was just something not right about her. Even her own twin daughters said that they had a very unhealthy relationship with their mother, and sometimes her behavior was unpredictable. So, a little foreshadowing there. Well, so what was it? Four marriages? Yeah, this was Not her saying fourth. That, uh, with, getting oh, divorced makes you unstable. I'm right. just saying maybe four marriages by the time you're 35 is uh, right. it's not great. No. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't take long into their marriage before Stephen's banker informed him that Celeste was removing jewelry and silver that belonged to Stephen's late wife Elise from their <gasps> oh, safety I'll deposit kill her myself. box. Right? I'll kill her myself. He's Celeste. The dead wife, okay. jewelry, and silver, removing no. it from the safety deposit box. Is she the one that dies? Fucking bitch. Just Spoiler alert. Is she the one that dies? If she's no, not the one that you. dies, I'm okay. You have to tune out. <laughs> Stephen became enraged and wanted to file for divorce immediately when he found out. However, Celeste was somehow able to slither her way back in mm, I and wonder get how. his forgiveness. I flashed a tit or two. Okay, Stephen withdrew the petition to divorce and the couple attempted to make it work, which is so awful because it should just be done. So after she does something like that. But anyway, in 1999, a few years later, Celeste entered a treatment facility because she had long suffered from depression and was was and was beginning to have suicidal thoughts she knew she needed something more than just therapy and medication so she went to a psychiatric hospital in the hospital she met another patient named tracy tarleton they immediately became very close friends after they were both released from the facility it's when things got confusing and a little weird some witnesses believe that these two became lovers once oh. they were out in the real world, while others claim that it was just Tracy that had a really unhealthy obsession with Celeste and wanted something more, while Celeste was constantly saying, I need to work on my marriage, you need to back off. 
Tracy was a lesbian and dated women, whereas Celeste had only dated men in the past, but anything can happen. But anything can happen in putting rehab. that out there. Um, Tracy was asked by Stephen even at one point to leave his wife alone because she was showing up to family functions and other events, seemingly uninvited, but could have absolutely been invited by Celeste because some people claimed they were much closer than Celeste was letting on. Yeah. So they were either and secret Celeste lovers. Celeste didn't seem like she was like super honest, honest. with her husband. <laughs> exactly. So no one is for sure if Tracy was invited to these or if she was just being a little bit stalkerish. So whatever the case may be, eight months after these two started their friendship in the hospital, the worst thing imaginable happened. 3 a.m. on October 2nd, Stephen Beard called 911 and claimed he had been shot several times in the stomach and was holding his insides in his hand. When police sergeant Truitt arrived to the house, he recalls thinking that Celeste was acting very strangely. Um, Stephen was rushed off to the hospital to be treated, but he, Truitt, stayed and started questioning Celeste. She said that she had not been next to her husband when the shooting happened because she was sleeping in another area of the house at the time. And as she was being questioned, she said the oddest thing, which was, quote, ugh, perfect timing. We were supposed to be going to Europe tomorrow morning, which Truett found so strange and inappropriate for the time after her husband had just been shot and could be dying. She was concerned about their Europe trip. So Truett already I was mean, like. it's not the best timing. It's, I mean, it's not great. You had your trip planned. Europe, man. So Truett immediately was like, this bitch. During the investigation that followed, Celeste's daughters, again, they're not huge fans of their mom, pointed out that their mother had a very strange friendship with this woman named Tracy Tarleton and they should look into her. Because it was believed, even though Celeste was acting weird, it was believed that an intruder had come in. There was, it looked like forced entry and things were not, things just looked out of place. Right. So... They go to Tracy's house and a shotgun was found in her home that matched the shell casings found at the scene. Okay. So Tracy was taken into custody. She remained the only killer involved at the time and she was sitting in jail awaiting trial. Stephen actually lived for months after the gunshot and was supposedly going to make a full recovery. However, sadly, in January 2002, he died from a blood clot that was connected to complications from the gunshot wound. So now it's become murder. So it has become a homicide case. Stephen's children and even Celeste's twin daughters were telling investigators that they believed their mother could have been involved. They had heard her say strange things hinting towards wanting to hire someone to help her with Stephen. They also could see that she showed no grief or any feelings towards her husband's death. She actually remarried remarried just five months after Stephen's death to another guy named Cole Johnson. Tracy got wind from jail of Celeste getting married and her anger and jealousy began to boil. Before her murder trial began in 2002, she told police that she was not alone in this murder and that Celeste had asked her to come over and murder Stephen in his sleep so they could finally be together. A murder indictment for Celeste came in March 2002, and when her trial finally began, it took the jury three days to find Celeste guilty of her husband's murder and allowing Tracy Charlton into their home. They both were sentenced to a life in prison, but then I think actually Tracy's sentencing became shortened because she gave up Celeste. But um, probably I do want to add in that Celeste's lawyer, Dick DeGarren, fought hard both during the trial and after fighting for an appeal that Tracy was simply just obsessed and this was a crime of passion and Celeste had no knowledge that Tracy was going to break into the house. Even though Celeste did suffer from mental illness, DeGarren actually did not use reason of insanity at all in the case, 
First of all, because Celeste completely had her wits about her the night her husband was shot and the months following and never claimed to be in any sort of blackout. Second of all, he actually had a pretty good case built up against Tracy that could hold this all together for him. He was reading some of her creepy and stalkery diary entries at the trial, which didn't bode well for her. I couldn't find like full actual entries, but they were very much just like, I love her. I can't believe she's still with her husband. I need to be with her, blah, blah, blah. He brought up the fact that it took Tracy so long to come forward with the new information about Celeste, which is also very fishy, and just how she was a little bit creepy in general. Seemed like this was a crime of passion committed by Tracy and that she just wanted to be with Celeste and was angry at Stephen for telling her to back off. However, what swayed the prosecution in the end to convict Celeste and not believe that it was just Tracy acting alone was that her two daughters were so willing to come to court and speak out against her. Oh, gosh. They said that they had seen years of Celeste being disgusted by Stephen, who they loved. I don't think I included this earlier, but Stephen actually adopted them after they got married because they loved him so much, which is really sad. Stephen. I know. Um, They said they witnessed her putting pills in his food, which they later found out to be sleeping pills. And they just talked about how constantly terrible their marriage was and how much fighting there was and how Celeste was always just trying to go out on the town and wasn't committed to the marriage at all. Um, Dick DeGaron, the lawyer, fought against the daughters, claiming that they were just trying to get a bigger inheritance and they needed their mom out of the way in order to do so. But the prosecution did not buy it. These girls were sincere and all of the witnesses who came forward were sincere about Celeste having a dark side. So it was the obvious conclusion that Celeste just wanted her husband's money, had no interest in the marriage, and it is believed that she hired Celeste and that's why she's rotting away in jail today. I, that's the thing is that like I would believe either scenario. I know. It could be I mean, I don't know anything about this turtle tob. What's her name? (laughs) Tarleton. Tracy Tarleton. <laughs> Tracy Turtletop. Tracy Turtletop. That's why I put question mark. Crime of passion or, or planned plan murder. I, don't know. I know. I mean, it's. Um, it could go either way. It could go either way. It could have been. Yeah. It's rough. Either way, she seems like she could have used a timeout. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Celeste yes. could have used. I don't know if she deserved life in prison, but a timeout would have probably served her well. Yep. I can't believe she got life. I actually thought that was surprising. But that's that is like, surprising because uh, that's how much wow. they believed. I'm trying to. Maybe that's I that's still one have of those thing things open. where it's like guilty or not proven. Because how then were they able to connect any evidence to her? They just said that right. they knew that, or th- they were able to prove or theorize that she let Tracy in. Right. Which even if she did, they clearly were friends. Like even if like if you came knocking on my door, I mean you're not obsessed with me that I know of. But like if you came <laughs> you in, if you came knocking on my door one night, and I let you in, and then like you and I were sitting on the couch watching a movie or something, and you went in and killed Joe, mm-hmm. like I didn't let you in knowing that you were gonna have right. a shotgun and kill Letting my husband, a friend in. boyfriend, who whatever right. Joe is, roommate. <laughs> I know I was trying to find more of why it was life sentence because that seems so it seems crazy severe, they had but... to have had some evidence it couldn't have all been circumstantial I mean it could have been the American court system is crazy I but... was gonna say I was like don't <laughs> question they said yeah they said in 2003 she was convicted of capital murder receiving a mandatory life sentence wow. 
She will be eligible for parole on April 1st, 2042. Oh. Um, she still maintains her innocence, of course. And I think right. that Dick DeGaron guy like still is trying to get her appeals because he's like, she didn't do this. But I don't know. I see both sides. Either way, Celeste sucks. A yeah, big one. Yeah, she's not great. I don't love her. <laughs> but Tracy also seems very suspect and may have just been obsessed. Turtle Tob? Turtle Tob was in love. Um, so I'm taking us back again. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce this name, actually. I forgot to look it up. Do you know how to pronounce that? Lob? Lob? That's what, That's what I was going to say. Okay. Maybe. So Denise Lob was born in 1926. Which was the same year that George Hassel was put to death in oh the electric gosh, chair. Oh, Look at the connections That has today. nothing to do with anything. Oh, okay. I just thought that was an interesting numerology situation. It is. So, uh, born in France, 1926, and orphaned by the age of 13. She was a very hard worker, but not the best at dating. She had quite a few relationships, and her daughter, Catherine, was the result of one of them. She eventually, after having Catherine, scored herself a good job even started going to university and had made a good life for herself. By all accounts, she was very happy, according to the people in her life. That is, until she met Jacques. Jacques. Jacques was a philosophy student and three years younger than Denise. She was totally smitten with him and he was not stable. Oh, no. In his philosophy studies, he came across the theory of superhumans and decided that himself, specifically, and possibly Denise, were a super couple. And superhumans, super couple, doesn't mean like superheroes. Um, comic books had begun to be released in 1933, but this was more of a mental concept known as Ubermensch. Oh. It is a goal. Humanity can set for itself to become as superior as possible by breeding with only specific types of people. You can advance generation to generation. Also known as eugenics. Right. Very popular We've heard of this. with Nazism. Yeah. Past and present, I assume. Ugh. Nasty. Uh, so he seems like a nice guy. Anyways. <laughs> All around good guy. <laughs> Jacques decided that Denise had to prove herself to him. He wanted her to prove that she was superior to other women and prove that she was worthy of being his partner because he was definitely superhuman. Mm -hmm. uh, of but course. he wasn't sure if she was was had the genes. Oh boy. Uh, Jacques was a sicko. He actually he came across a story where a mother had decided to kill her child as she was in a relationship and the child was a result of a past relationship. So Jacques had drummed his this idea into Denise's head. He wanted to he wanted her to kill Catherine, who was only two years old at the time. No. So anyone in their right oh, mind so would be young. like, fuck you yeah. and leave. But she was completely out of her mind for this guy. Ugh. She was planning on going through with his request to prove herself to him. She, it's crazy how blinding oh, love can be she, or like, obsession And she be. loved her daughter. Right. She tried to drop Catherine out of a window, but she was unsuccessful. I can't find out how she was unsuccessful, whether she couldn't do it in the moment or whether she tried and Catherine survived, but she couldn't do it. Um, she was so terrified that she was going to lose Jacques, though. 
that she tried again. Oh, no. She threw Catherine into a canal. She immediately regretted it and went and found help. And Catherine survived after a stranger was able to pull the small girl from the water. This was obviously tearing her apart. Like, she did not want to kill her daughter, but she did not want to lose Jacques, this guy who she had fallen completely in love with. And it was, I don't know if it was the first great relationship that she'd ever been in, but it was definitely, like, the first time in her life where she had it all. She had, like, her daughter, a relationship, a great job. She was going to school. I think she thought that if she lost Jacques, she would lose everything. Sure. But by November of 1954, Jacques had become more and more demanding. He urged Denise to kill Catherine if she wanted to be with him. And her third attempt to kill the child was successful. Mm. On the 8th of November, Denise drowned Catherine in the wash basin. And she sent a telegram to Jacques to inform him she had killed Catherine, hoping that he would finally accept her. Um, obviously that telegram was found after the child's body was found and Denise ended up being found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Catherine and Jacques was actually sentenced to 20 years. I can't, so this happened in France, obviously. Mm -hmm. I can't find any record of their deaths, but she was born in 1926. So she very well could be 92 and alive today in prison. I mean, it would be like hard to believe, but yeah. Um, I can only find a handful of articles in English and I can't read French. So who knows? I have no <laughs> who idea. Who knows where they are at today? Um, that is horribly sad. Yeah, they they attempted to say that she was, uh, they, they didn't use the term temporary insanity, but it was something like that where it was like a temporary loss of like, of uh, rational thought. Um, but the jury, like they were Threw like, no. Out. Absolutely not. They were like, you tried to kill her three times. Several times, yeah. Three times you tried to kill your two-year-old daughter. For this idiot. For this idiot. And the scary thing is, is that if either of the first two attempts had been successful, she probably would have gotten away with it. That's actually true. Because if the the window thing, dropping her out of a window worked, like mm. you could have said she fell out the window. You totally. could claim whatever. If the canal thing worked, you could say she fell in the canal. Like right. we tried to save her. Um, but the drowning, but the drowning so clear, in like, the basin, you forced this yeah, upon her. yeah. Can oh, you imagine? That's that is horrible. so heartbreaking. I know. I'm Don't sorry. Like the little, the I know. Died. I didn't want to tell. Both of my stories today have been like <laughs> killing true. the children. The children have I'm died. So sorry. I'm about to I just birth. knew that you couldn't <laughs> tell the stories yourself. Little. My little guy. Little guy. Little, little. He's wearing an I voted sticker today. <laughs> yes, I have it on my bump. Uh, little Frankie. Frankie. Frankie Ogle. <laughs> Final story. Sheila Garvey and Brian Tevendale. This isn't. Those aren't real names. Well, they are from Scotland. Oh, okay. So we'll give them a little, little grace. Okay. Brian Tevendale was just a normal Scottish man. He just finished his time in the army and had returned to his town in Scotland to a pretty mundane life in the mid 60s. His sister Trudy invited him he became a mechanic when he got back to town after being in the army as well so it's mid 60s i think probably like 66 in scotland in scotland um we're going he, all over the world I for this know, episode i'm loving fun. It. lots Go of on. travel his sister trudy invites him to come to a party with her at the garvey's it's this couple sheila and maxwell garvey they were a farming couple living in west i hate this word cairnbulg 
It's this is the real spelling. It doesn't seem real. Say C A I R N B U L G. Cairnburg. Yeah, that's it's, not the best. It's Scotland. I don't know. So they're living in West Blooplop, and they were known Cairnburg. Cairnburg, and they were known to be a little wild. It was rumored that these Wait, two, the people that they were the Garveys, the farming couple, the Garveys. Okay. Yes. Um, it was rumored that they had sex parties and drug-filled orgies at a little place on their land that they called the Kinky Cottage. Oh, fancy. <laughs> These activities were mostly attached to Maxwell, but Sheila seemed to know about them and not really care and kind of look the other way. So Brian, back to the original guy who just came back from being in the army, Brian and his sister Trudy, who Trudy is actually a married woman to a local policeman, I will throw in. They arrive at the party and uh, Brian quickly realizes that his sister Trudy is having an open affair with Maxwell Garvey. Sheila was in the know about it and it was simply a sexual affair that involved no emotional feelings at all. Everyone okay. was just Everyone okay was with totally it. Fine. Maxwell came to really like and respect Brian. They both connected over their love for Scottish nationalism and enjoyed sharing drinks and drugs together quite often. Mm-hmm. One day, Max gave permission to Brian to go for his wife, Sheila, as you do. Mm-hmm. He said, as long as there are no emotions attached, you can have her as many times as you want. Yeah. So Brian agreed and he began sleeping with Sheila. It is said by witnesses that sometimes Brian and Max flipped a coin to see who would be having sex with Sheila that night. It well, just if, if, hurts if Brian me. wasn't having sex with Sheila, did he have to just sit there with his sister? Right. It's like, what would he be doing? Because his sister would be off having sex with Maxwell. So maybe right. he was just bored and was like, fine. But anyway, Ugh. so he started having sex with Sheila. After a few months of this, the then 23-year-old mechanic Brian had fallen in love with 33-year-old Sheila, and she had fallen in love with him. At this point, Trudy and Max had ended their sexual escapades, but Sheila and Brian did not want to end theirs. Max began to sense something more was going on, and he became violent towards both of them. He would become drunkenly enraged and go on rants with the two of them, and sometimes this would result in a punch or slap to his wife Sheila. This is when Brian said the wheels in his head started turning that him and Sheila needed to make moves and do something. Not necessarily murder, but like try and flee, do anything. So he was starting to get more and more concerned. He knew that it would have to end so he could be with his true love, Sheila. On May 14th, 1968, Brian Tevendale came over for one of his sneaky romantic evenings with his lover, Sheila, while Maxwell was sound asleep in his bed, not knowing what was going on next to him. Oh, that is risky. So risky. Maxwell's in the house. There's speculation over exactly what happened next, but at some point, Brian barged into the bedroom where Maxwell was sleeping, knocked him out with the end of his shotgun, put a pillow over his head, and shot Maxwell several times in the head. He used the pillow in an attempt to muffle the sounds of the shotgun because the Garvey's three children were sleeping in the house while all this horror was happening. So they like also the two of them just didn't care that they were carrying on this affair with everyone in the house, which is disgusting as well. Well, how big was the house? I think it was a decent size, but I mean, they were farmers, so it wasn't like a mansion, but still. Um, Hold on. Okay. No, continue. I'll ask my question later. Awful. So Max's body was wrapped in a bedsheet and dumped near Loriston Castle. It was only found because a couple of weeks later, Sheila finally told her mother that she believed her boyfriend had killed her husband. Police found the body and both Sheila and Brian were brought to trial. 
During the trial, Sheila confessed her love for Brian, and the two basically had no argument to fight the accusations of murder, said they did it for love. They were both convicted and were sentenced to only 10 years in prison. I don't know if this is a Scottish thing or <laughs> just like just super lenient or like there. an early 70s thing, but they got 10 years in prison for this murder. Oh my God, that's insane. Brian for carrying it out and Sheila for, I don't know if she helped or just because she was standing right there, but while in prison, they wrote letters to each other saying how they were going to try and seek permission to marry each other during their time in jail. However, three months after the trial, Sheila wrote another letter after all these greatly romantic ones saying that they had to end all communication immediately and she never wanted to see Brian again. To Brian, this was very abrupt and made zero sense. Right. But it is. What did I do? I haven't even seen. We haven't even seen each other. But it is believed that she did this because she was being denied access to her children. And Mm -hmm. I think she was told if you cut off this relationship with the murdery guy, you'll see your kids again. So they cut off all communication and they truly never did meet again for the rest of their lives, which in a weird murdery way is sad. <laughs> they <laughs> both served their 10 years in prison and were eventually released. They both remarried and have lived actually semi-normal lives in Scotland since. Brian sadly passed away from a heart attack in 2003, but I believe it's similar to your story. I wasn't able to find concrete evidence, but I believe Sheila is still alive hanging out in scotland somewhere that's crazy i know there's living life how did they get 10 years 10 that's it for murdering a guy who was sound asleep i wonder if they use the same um this uh, if they if they had the same story you know because he had been publicly hitting his wife right of course it was the 70s I know. I don't know different. if like they anyone would care. Right. I think people I mean Maxwell was known to be like just this wild drunken idiot. So I think right. people saw him in a rage sometimes and were like it's just It Max. could literally be that they couldn't find anyone to testify against them. Totally. That's probably true. So That's very nuts. lenient sentencing. But yeah. yeah, I just think it's crazy that they got out of prison. It was just like on to the next well, and they well. remarried and that was that. that was that. That was that. If I could do a Scottish accent, I uh, would try. I sure can't. I if cannot. only Joe was here. Hey, Penny, can you do it? Penny, no, you're asleep. You it? Oh, great. This is a short one, but I would be so upset with myself if I didn't mention it because it's bananas. So, I can't wait. Um, in 2010, there was a murder trial. Oh. The defendant was an elementary school teacher and amateur skydiver. Els Babs Klotmans. Okay. The victim was Els Van Doren. Now, I was confused at the Els thing. Like, yeah, I thought happening? I thought it was like Er in Swedish. Right. So, like, Er Blomqvist means sure. like Sir or Mr. Uh, but apparently, it is an actual shortened version of a name, uh, an oh. actual Dutch language name, because this was in, what did I say, Belgian? They were Belgian? They were Belgian. So. Yes. It's usually short for Elizabeth. Okay. Either way, I'm going to refer to everyone by their last names because I can't. I can't handle this. So, Clottemans and Van Doren were skydivers, right? Well, they also shared a lover, a man named Marcel Summers. And everyone knows that love triangles usually end in happily ever after, but not this time. <laughs> what? Surprise, it doesn't end well. I don't believe it. I know. So on November 18th, 2006, Van Doren, 
Van Doren, 38 years old. Uh, she was married. She was a mother of two. Died when both her primary and her reserve parachutes failed to deploy. <gasps> that is my actual nightmare. It's Can't awful. Can't think about it. The dive and her death was captured on her camera, mounted on her helmet. You can Ugh. find it online. Do not ever, 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 I ever, can't. ever watch it. I will never look that up. She dropped from a height of over two miles and landed in a garden and was killed immediately. I mean, yeah. Police survived that. Yeah. Police later established that the cords of the parachute had been cut. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. <sighs> so the case was completely circumstantial. They had no way of proving it, what happened if any of the people skydiving with her cut the cords or if someone in her life cut the cords. They right. had no idea. But Clottemans became a suspect when she attempted suicide right before she was going to give a second statement to police a month after the incident. Interesting. Police later learned that both women had a sexual relationship with Summers and that this is cold, man. And that the week before the fatal jump, all three of them spent the weekend at his home. With Clottaman sleeping in the living room while the other two slept in the bedroom. That is ice cold. That's that is ice cold. Ice, ice baby. Apparently, wow. um, <laughs> this is when police think that the cords were cut on the parachute. Seeing yeah, as she'd have access been. to the chutes and Van Doren would have been preoccupied. Oh, yeah. Yeah, essentially she... They were all, so Van Doren was married, like I said, and mm -hmm. she had two kids. So yeah. she like had her own thing going on. Clottemans was single and Summers was sleeping with both women. Right. And both women knew that he was sleeping with both of them, but Clottemans didn't have like a husband to go home to. Right. She was so, just in and, this And if little you look affair. at the pictures of the women, like Van Doren was a little more athletic build. She was kind of like sexy Okay. Uh, in like a 40 something year old like mother of two way sure and Clottemans and she looked like she would be like a skydiver and a skier and stuff yeah. and Clottemans just looked like someone drug her to skydiving someone forced like she her was uh, she was an elementary school teacher but she was just very like homely yeah. and she was a little a little overweight okay and so basically when they I think the last straw was going and spending the weekend all together and putting her on the couch sure so um how freaking dare horrible you. she has since though maintained her innocence even after being sentenced to 30 years of imprisonment they mm. sentenced her 30 years instead of life because of her feeble psychological condition uh, was to them extenuating circumstances. Okay. Um, so essentially, I think finally in this episode, we have a case where someone snapped and committed a crime of passion. Yeah, she absolutely <laughs> like for snapped. Sure. She literally could not handle it anymore. And and it was known. I don't know if I said I didn't. I didn't write it down either. But uh, one of the reasons they found out too, like after she committed, she tried to kill herself. They were like, well, that's kind of weird. Because they weren't that close friends. Then they found out about the relationship yeah. that they were all having. They found out about the weekend trip. They also found out that Clottemans had called Van Doren's husband and told him about the affair. Ooh. And Clottemans was like doing whatever she could to get Van Doren and Summers to break it off. Because right. she thought that if that got broken off, Summers would only have her. Yeah. Even though he was very clear with her that like, I don't want a relationship with you. This is just a sexual thing. Yeah. 
Um, and I think the putting her on the couch while the other two got it. to sleep together in a Straw bed. Straw that broke was the like, camel's back. No. I won't stand no, for this. I will not stand for this. So she did get prison time, but it, it was like we talked about in the beginning. It was shortened because yeah. of her mental um, state. Yeah, and it okay. wasn't, she was convicted of m- murder, I think. Hold on. So they oh, it did. Didn't say, it didn't okay. say exactly what her conviction was, just that she was sentenced to 30 years. So maybe it was an actual murder, maybe but they knew like you, yeah, you had something to do with it. And this. really, they didn't. She never admitted to it. They never were able to prove that she did it. It's just kind of like, well, who else would have? Right. Because both of the parachutes, her like emergency parachute, like her initial. Both were cut? Yeah, both of them were cut. <sighs> so, I mean, she didn't just have a chance. The terror you, you would feel. Imagine like I have no. Well, a lot shoot, of people say that you would die before you hit the ground. Oh, really? Because you of the rate be that you're scared to death. Ah, that makes. There's a that lot photo. Of sense. Have you seen that photo of the girl who jumped from? I don't remember a very tall building. I don't remember what building she jumped from, and she lands on the car, and she's like, she's like, on the car, and her legs are crossed. It's like an old black and white picture. And uh, the car is completely like Smashed she hit in. it so yeah, hard, that, it. and she's got like a smile on her face. Yeah, and they think that she actually like died before in she even air. hit the ground because she. I mean, like, the terror passed. you would feel, you would just like knock well, you know, out. I don't know if that's true. Right. I have I no could, idea. I, I think people just probable. say that to make them feel just better feel before better. they jump off a bridge or something. Like, oh, you won't feel the smashing. Yeah, into the if ground. it's like a high enough. And I would say two miles, probably high enough to Holy die before shit, you. That is so two long. miles, two miles of just falling and, like and knowing said, that it's about oh to be God. over. Like That's I said, um, she had a camera on. That footage so is really online. online That's yeah. so sick to me. It's awful. I will never look that up. I'm already like I hate being up in an airplane. I hate heights. Like that video would destroy me. I didn't watch it with sound on, obviously, because I would have died like thrown but uh and i didn't even know what i was watching i like found the initial story and then i i went to research it elsewhere and i found a website that i had to translate into english and at the top there's a video playing and it was like a new the news report and uh they are a lot less pg over in uh belgium apparently because they showed this on the news yeah we censored everything yeah we would have been like it's too graphic like go online if you want to see it uh, no, they showed it on the news and because essentially it's not just like they all skydive together that day, too. Yeah. Um, but there was like a formation. You know, how they jump out and they all hold hands and mm-hmm. they form like a snowflake. Shape? Sure. Um, it was like that. Only she just plummeted. Dropped. Yeah. And she um, like broke away from the formation and you can like see the formation above her as she's uh, i assume screaming she's because like screaming her, and tumbling yeah. away Ooh, it's horrible awful awful also it was reported that Clodemans actually wa- usually jumps at the same time as everyone else stayed up and waited like huh. half a minute to jump interesting so it was almost as if she wanted to watch she's like i need to watch this unfold See, that's real creepy. Yeah. Anyways. That's almost like a half crime of passion, like half meditated. Like yeah. just standing back and watching. Standing that's back and gross. watching. Well, and, and it could have been, you know, the thing is, is like we don't know what was going on in her head. She could have cut those cords that night when she's stuck on the couch while they're having their. Regretted it the next day. Double affair. And, you know, when they went skydiving, 
people could be jumping out and she could have literally been like, oh no, oh my God. What did I do? Oh my God, what did I do? Right. Oh my God, I cut the cords of her. Why did I do you know that? What I mean, she totally. could have like, it could have slipped she her mind. She could have absolutely regretted it. Anyways. Sweet Lord. That's all the time we have <laughs> this week for Keep It Weird. We hope you don't kill your spouse. Please um, don't. Or, or your, your children. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> Leave them alone. Thanks for listening to our show. Stay tuned next week for a very special edition true crime investigation. It's very cool. Essentially, I got to sit down with one of my best friends from back home and finally have a chat about the unsolved murder we've been investigating since June. Can't wait. It's a lot of fun. It's a really fascinating case that I think you guys will love so much. So make sure that you check it out. I it's can't really wait kind to listen. Like, It'll be fun for me because I'm not in it. So I get yeah, to listen so with like fresh ears. For the first time about this murder. Yeah, it's... I'm well, I won't excited. go into it now. It's a lot of fun. There'll be surprises. Some surprises. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Keep It Weird Cast and our Facebook page, Keep It Weird. Check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Keep It Weird Podcast. And if you want some merch, head over to our Etsy store at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Keep It Weird Podcast and buy some buttons, magnets, or patches. They're and the cutest. They are the cutest. You should buy them, all of them, really. Um,. Now, in my notes, it just says sign off, and we forgot to think of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> denim, denim, denim. <laughs> denim, denim, jeans. denim. It's the dumbest, but. Denim, denim. Denim, denim, denim. It's also very ominous. <gasps> denim, denim, denim. Jeans, jeans, jeans. Jeans. And when he goes down the tunnel. Jeans, jeans, jeans. Jeans, jeans, Yeah. That was good. And keep it weird. Wearing blue jeans. Oh, and keep uh keep it weird also. Keep it weird. <laughs> <laughs>